This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer for the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. Thanks for joining us today. As usual, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show's about ideas and strategies and conversations. And we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And let me emphasize, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening to this show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. We have a special guest today with an amazing story. 20 years ago, Drew Greenblatt bought Marlin Steel, a manufacturer of metal bagel baskets, Things didn't go precisely according to plan, and Drew was forced to reinvent the company. He pivoted to supplying custom-engineered metal baskets for manufacturers in the aerospace, defense, medical, and automotive industries. We're going to talk about how he did that, why his factory has never had a bigger backlog, why he can't find enough employees, and what he sees ahead for American manufacturing. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Drew. Hi. Thank you so much. I look forward to... uh talking about business today. Oh, thanks for being here, Drew. We really appreciate it. Uh, so I, I want to get to uh, all the good stuff about what's going on with you today, uh, what you guys are doing. But let's let's set the background a little bit. Tell us, w- when you bought that uh, company that was making metal bagel baskets, wh- what were you thinking? W- what did you think you were buying at that point? Well, in 1998, when we bought Marlin Steel, It was a small company in Brooklyn, New York, and it made bagel baskets for little bagel shops, little retail bagel establishments, uh, largely in the New York City area, but uh, they um, shipped it uh, nationwide. There was a big fad going on, and a lot of people were starting to eat uh, bagels, and a lot of bagel shops were opening, so I thought this was a brilliant time uh, to enter into the bagel basket manufacturing business because I could capture this uh, ascent of this wonderful fad. Uh, things, uh, How, how'd that go, Drew? Well, unfortunately, it didn't go well. Uh, soon after I bought the company, two terrible things happened. The first thing was the Atkins diet. All of a sudden, people started uh, <laughs> cutting out uh, carbohydrates from their diet. That was horrific to somebody in our business model because all of a sudden all of our shops didn't do so well, all all of our clients. Also, the second thing that happened, which was devastating, was we started uh, getting competitors from China delivering baskets for cheaper than we could buy steel. So we were in a devastating position where our clients were going under because the carbohydrates was perceived as a terrible thing at that time, and also... Our competition was undercutting us at prices that made no financial sense. It was a horrific experience, and we were losing money hand over fist. So how did you respond to that? What was that like? So it was terrible. Uh, We couldn't initially figure out what to do, uh, and we were in a bad way. Uh, Things were spiraling out of control, and uh, we really needed an out, although there was no clear path on what do you do with a bagel basket manufacturer when uh, you're in this dramatic downturn? Uh, fortuitously, around this time, we received an inquiry from an engineer at Boeing, the aerospace company, and they asked for a custom basket, a certain size, and they needed a handful of them, and, and uh, we quoted it, and uh, we won the job. And this was the epiphany, focusing in on, instead on quality engineered and fast delivery. That quality engineered quick paradigm is the focus of our company now. This is our mantra. And we pivoted from commodity bagel baskets to focusing into engineered baskets with very high quality requirements. That's quite a transition. What what did it take to make that pivot? What did you have to do to to switch directions like that? It was wrenching. Uh, We had to totally... 
re-engineer the company. Uh, we brought on mechanical engineers who could talk, uh, engineer talk with engineers, at, process engineers at Boeing and Toyota and Pfizer and Merck. I, they, they talk a different language. We also uh, bought expensive technology, uh, robots and automation, uh, wire-forming equipment that was state-of-the-art. And by doing these activities, we were able to make a tighter tolerance product and a, and a, and a product that was novel and innovative. Uh, and because of that, we could differentiate ourselves from commodity products that the Chinese could make. I've uh, I've seen your factory, and I want you to kind of give us a tour of it uh, a little bit later, and you know, talk to us about some of that equipment you have. But, but I'm I'm curious about that. You, you got that uh, phone call or uh, message from Boeing. You won that contract, and you realized that you had that moment of epiphany. You wanted to go in that direction. Um, you couldn't have just invested all that money in, in new equipment overnight. Uh, it must have been very difficult to, you know, to turn the direction of the ship and figure out uh, how to get new clients and what, what you actually needed in the factory to, to serve those clients. How did you make that transition? So uh, one, one day at a time, one step at a time. <laughs> uh, we, bought, we bought, you know, one piece of technology, and then we would buy another piece of technology. We would hire uh, one engineer and then hire another engineer. You just do it, you know, one step at a time. It was not, you know, uh, a, an instant uh, revolution. Instead, it was a, uh, a plan that was measured and over years. Uh, but we had to move quickly because our old clients were dying. We had to move quickly because our old clients that survived uh, were buying baskets for, uh, you know, from these Chinese vendors. So we had to pivot quickly, and our choice was to pivot or die. Uh, there was no alternatives. And, uh, you know, we upgraded our team so that they could work with tighter tolerances. We improved our prints. Uh, we Over the years, we've bought over $6 million worth of robots and technology. We became ISO, uh, which is a very process-driven system, uh, so that we could uh, meet the, the very demanding requirements of engineers at um, aerospace, medical, pharmaceutical uh, clients, automotive clients. You say you upgraded your team. What, what did that entail? Did you have to have a complete turnover in terms of your workforce? So uh, many of our team was actually happy to do less drudgery work. I mean, when I first bought the company, the newest piece of equipment was from the 1950s. We would literally hand bend every bend. We would literally individually weld every single intersection. That's thousands of hand bends a day. We had guys as big as, that had arms the size of Popeye uh, because they would over and over again, 300 hand bends an hour, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, and then the very next week they do the exact same thing. We had eight fellows doing just that activity. Very boring, mind-numbing kind of work. It's carpal tunnel syndrome work. And, and this is the company I bought. Um, by investing in the new technology, now the employees were doing uh, higher-level, higher-brain work. And now they're monitoring multiple robots making these uh, bends and multiple robots making these welds. And each weld is precise, each bend is precise, and our clients are thrilled and our employees don't have to um, be in such a challenging environment of, of repetitive work. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Drew Greenblatt, CEO of Marlin Steel, a Baltimore-based manufacturing firm. Uh, we're talking about what it's like to be a uh, manufacturer in the United States today, we're going through Drew's story a little bit, uh, the pivot he had to take, uh, and where he is now, uh, which is pretty much running around the clock. We're going to get to that. But if you have a question uh, about anything he's been through or anything involving your company that you'd like us to discuss, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 Nine four two seven eight six six. So, Drew, bring us up to date. Um, give us a sense. How big is the company today? Do, do, are you comfortable talking about your revenues? How many employees? Absolutely. So, we are uh, eight times bigger than when I bought the company, and uh, we're uh, we're hoping to do almost seven million dollars in sales this year. Uh, our team is amazing. Uh, we're running one hundred sixty-eight hours a week right now. Um, we're making. Uh, I, I'm not that quick on math. What is that? 168 hours. What does that seven, mean? Seven, 
seven days a week, 24 hours a day. <laughs> okay. Our factory is making product, and we're shipping, uh, you know, in the old days, and uh, a, we, would, we would jokingly call an export was shipping from Brooklyn to the Bronx. Now we ship to 39 countries. My favorite is that we ship to China. We, make, we use American steel from Illinois or Indiana, and we ship it literally, our products to China, Taiwan, Singapore, Australia. Um, it, it, it's, it's heartwarming. Uh, we ship uh, every other day to Mexico. We ship a couple times a week to Canada. Uh, we have an amazing crew, and, and uh, they're making products that are literally there's a global demand for this. How many employees do you have? We have 31 employees, and we have 11 temps temporary employees uh, helping us with this surge of activity. And Everybody's working mandatory overtime, and everybody is uh, really uh, going uh, full guns to help us meet the client demand. So could you kind of quickly walk us through the plant a little bit? And um, I'm interested in this. I want to get to talking about how you took advantage of the uh, new tax rules that were included in the uh, in President Trump's uh, tax bill last year, or actually 2017 now. Um, t- tell us a little bit, if, if somebody were walking from one end of your plant to the other, give us a sense of what they would see. So our uh, factory is a uh, bigger than, uh, almost as big as a a football field. And uh, it's uh, 43,000 square feet, and uh, it's loaded with robots and technology. We have lasers and punches and press brakes. Uh, We have welding machines, so there's sparks flying. Um, We bring on one end raw material, coils of wire that weigh more than a car, sheets of steel that are five feet by 10 feet big. And uh, we uh, it comes in in loads, 40,000-pound loads, and then the steel is processed in, into a series of ac- uh, activities. Either it's cut up with a laser or it's punched with a, a steel punch. The laser and the punch were made in Connecticut. Or if it's in coils of wire, it's uh, bent um, uh, in, in all kinds of uh, different um, angles uh, by machines that are going 400 feet a minute. These machines were made in Chicago. And then it's punched by machines that were made in Ohio and uh, threaded by machines made in Illinois. Uh, And then we box it and ship it out. It all starts, though, with the engineering. Our engineers collaborate with engineers throughout the world, and they try to understand the client's fit, their form, their function. And we try to come up with novel ideas so that our clients can be leading edge, cutting edge. We actually are right now working on getting four different patents for different types of baskets and racks uh, that to make us unique and different than our competition. I'm speaking with Drew Greenblatt, CEO of Marlin Steel. If you have a question or a comment, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Um, so... Uh, Let's back up a little bit. You told us your uh, your your team is working around the clock. Um, I guess that's a, a a good problem, but it seems like uh, it could be stressful. Uh, do, do you see that as a good thing? Is that something that you, that you want to continue, or something that you're trying to get away from? So, with manufacturing, um, it's not a straight line where you know every day you have to make X widgets a day so you can get everything just right and perfect. Um, Clients sometimes demand a lot of wire baskets. The next day, they'll need a lot of laser-cut parts, and the following day, they'll need a lot of punched parts. So we have to be, as American manufacturers, very nimble, very adaptable. Uh, We have to be fluid. And um, it's hard to um, get it perfect because sometimes, uh, you know, one cell is very busy. Uh, Sometimes uh, one cell is very slow. So we have to uh, be nimble. Um, obviously, we don't want to tax our employees so much so that, um, you know, the, the, their work-life balance is unacceptable. But I think our employees are very enthusiastic about this uh, burst of activity because, you know, it's easier to pay for Johnny's braces or to pay the next uh, car payment if you have a lot of overtime. Have you tried hiring more employees? We, we uh, have brought on a couple of new people. Uh, we started a third shift, uh, uh, an evening shift between 12 uh, midnight and 8 in the morning, um, and we have staffed up people from from uh, 
to, to, to fill those roles. Um, we also, uh, this week, bought a brand new press break, uh, a CNC press break. Um, so every time it comes down, it's the equivalent of 20 cars. It's a 40-ton press break um, to keep up with our demand. Uh, the new press break is 40% faster, and that's another way we're trying to improve our throughput by improving our productivity. So every time the employee is working, uh, every time the press break uh, comes down on the Z-axis, it's, it's going 40% faster. That's, that's part of the way of how we're addressing it. More robots, more automation, so that our employees have to sweat less often. So let's talk about the, the investment you made. Um, we spoke, uh, you and I spoke a year ago. I know you, at the time you described it as kind of going all in. Um, you saw, you know, even before the tax passage passed, you saw it coming and were making preparations for it. C- can you walk us through a little bit how you use the, the, the change in the tax laws to, uh, to help finance your investment in the business? So we had a huge tax law change occur that was very favorable for domestic manufacturers, American manufacturing. It was uh, a a milestone for companies that are investing in America because all of a sudden our investments could be instantly expensed, which means that if we stick our neck out and we take a chance and buy that new piece of technology, we don't have to wait 10 or 15 years uh, to um, have the um, uh, investment uh, pay us back through taxes. Instead, we can write it off that first year. I figured uh, that this would have a very good effect on American manufacturing because all of a sudden American manufacturers would all lean together to buy new equipment, become more productive so that they could be more competitive in the global space, in the global competitive environment. Um, so we went very heavy, very fast into uh, an investment spurge. Uh, we spent over $2 million in January last year in, new, in four new pieces of uh, technology, four new robots, plus we completely reconfigured the factory and we added seven times more power to our factory to, so we could keep up with the anticipated surge in business. American factories are right now in the midst of a massive investment binge trying to upgrade their equipment and take advantage of this new tax law. It's, uh, it's a, it, it recalibrates where's the best place to invest. In the old days, the best place to invest was China or Mexico. Now it's a no-brainer. You've got to invest in America. We have intellectual property rights protection. We have the rule of law. And now we have a, the most favorable tax plan. So what's happening is you're seeing tremendous enthusiasm with American manufacturing. $2 million is a big investment for a, a company with $7 million in, in revenue. Uh, and you were, you were able to write that off, though, in, in the very first year? We're probably not going to be able to write it off in the first year because we're not going to have $2 million of profit in the very first year. But we, we went all in with the mindset that there's going to be an enormous surge in American investment, enormous surge in American manufacturing, and that's who we cater to. That's our niche. That's our market. We're selling to the engineers, the mechanical engineers, manufacturing engineers located in all of these domestic factories, and they're right now being told by their CFOs uh, and their presidents and their plant managers to go out there and buy some great equipment, get us more effective, more productive, more efficient so that we can handle uh, the global competitive environment. And uh, all these manufacturing engineers are, are right now uh, challenged to get this equipment in and up their game and, and improve their productivity. And this is, a, this is a brand new American manufacturing renaissance right here in front of us. And we're uh, center stage and we're feeling it. We're getting a surge of business because of this activity. And there's just a general optimism and confidence in American manufacturing that we've never seen. Uh, The National Association of Manufacturers does a quarterly survey, outlook survey, and it's never been so high. Uh, Over 95% optimism with American manufacturing. It's stellar. We should probably mention you, you did a term as president of the National Association of Manufacturers. So uh, I was um, 
I was chairman of the National Association of Manufacturers, Small and Medium-Sized Manufacturers. Currently, I am on the executive board of the National Association of Manufacturers. It's a wonderful organization that advocates for the 12 million workers in America that work in manufacturing. You know, it's a really important industry. Uh, the average American manufacturing employee is paid uh, over $80,000 a year. And uh, these are great middle-class American jobs. It's critical that this industry thrives and prospers, and this tax law is really setting the stage. There's other th good things happening for American manufacturing. Uh, recently, there's been a reduction in cumbersome, uh, overzealous regulation. Also, energy prices have come down. American manufacturing benefits from energy prices being low and rational, uh, and we're seeing that with the fracking and shale revolution. So there's a lot of things coming together simultaneously for American manufacturing, low energy prices, rational regulations, and an, op and an optimal tax policy. Uh, these things are bode well for the American worker, and because of that, there's a lot of unemployed steel workers and a lot of unemployed manufacturing workers that are going to get opportunities they've never had in the past. I'm talking to Drew Greenblatt of Marlin Steel. If you have a comment or a question, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Uh, let's take a phone call now. Uh, I think it's from our friend Jay Goltz, who is a frequent guest on this show. Welcome back to Mind Your Business, Jay. Always good to be on. I want to ask Drew a great a question, a great story. We'll, we'll decide and, if it's a great question, Jay. Well, all right, you can decide. <laughs> but I'm sure it is. I think, I think the great question is, where did you come from? I mean, we skipped over. I bought this company. I'd love to hear, how did they, where did you find the company? What were you doing before? Were you always looking for a company? Were you working somewhere? Is it your cousin's company? I mean, what, how did this all happen that you bought this company? Drew? So I graduated from, uh, I got a business degree, um, an MBA at Tulane University. And uh, when I was um, interviewing for different companies uh, to work at um, after graduating, I realized that, um, you know, working for a big company wasn't my thing. Um, and I heard about a tiny little burglar alarm company for sale uh, in um, my community, and uh, I had no money. I had student debt, and I borrowed money from the seller, and I uh, tapped uh, the Tulane Alumni Association, and I looked. I found an, uh, a banker that was working in the Washington, D.C. metro area, which is where I hail from, and uh, I, this banker, um, I gave him my business plan of why we should, I, should, I should buy this burglar arm security system company, and he... Uh, lent me the money. Uh, so I had 80% from the bank, uh, that uh, fellow alumni who I never met before, and 20% uh, seller financing, and I bought a little burglar alarm company in um, Bethesda, Maryland. Um, the company grew very nicely, and uh, less than three years later, we got an opportunity to sell it for uh, five times what I bought it for. Uh, we took the proceeds from that transaction, and uh, I started looking for another business. And I had a list of 800 lawyers, accountants, business brokers, uh, association presidents, um, and uh, I would call this list of 800 people, uh, and I'd start in the beginning of every month, and I'd call every single one of them. Uh, and then once I got to the 800th one, I'd start calling all over again. And I did this over and over again uh, until we found Marlon Steele in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and it was a small company, 3,000 square feet. Uh, two fellows didn't have fingers. Two other fellows didn't have eyes because of safety issues at the plant. Everybody was on a minimum wage. Um, the Social Security was their retirement plan, and the health insurance plan was you go to the emergency room. Um, and it was a little decrepit company, uh, but it was profitable. And so we bought it. Uh, and um, the owner uh, retired in, in Florida. I, he was not a relative. He was a uh, third-party entity, um, and uh, we bought the company, and uh, now the employees are making four and a half times what, um, you know, our average employees making uh, just shy of $20 an hour and um, not minimum wage. 
everybody has the same health insurance plan I have, um, and uh, everybody has a 401k plan. So when you first graduated with your MBA and bought the alarm company, how old were you then? Um, I was uh, 23, 24. Okay, so you have a similar story to me. You really didn't have a full-time job working in it. And were you as startled as I was when you found out that what they taught you in school really didn't equip you to run a small business, or did you not find that to be the case? So, so actually, my first job out of college was I worked at a bank, and I went through their credit analyst program. And it was a wonderful experience for me because I learned how to speak the language of banker. And uh, I um, understood how bankers think. And, um, however, it was like oil and water. And I'm very entrepreneurial, and my um, instinct is to give that little entrepreneur a shot. Let's give him a shot. Let's, let's fund him so that he can make something great. And that's like oil and water in a bank, and I was... I was just going to uh, say, that probably didn't go over well. No, I was literally fired from my first job. And uh, <laughs> it was a disaster, and, and you know, seriously... Uh, you know, at the time, it was a disaster. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't know it at the time. But uh, so what happened was I, you know, lost my job, first job out of college, and I was in a bad way. You know, I didn't know uh, what to do next. Uh, I got an academic scholarship at Tulane. I learned how to, uh, I was a finance major, and uh, I was interviewed at, you know, Manufacturers Hanover Bank and Chemical Bank, and I realized this is just going to be another disaster. I'll be just working for a bigger bank. Uh, it'll be but the same outcome, and this is not a good solution. So that's why I pursued this uh, tiny little burglar alarm company. Jay, I'm God curious. Bless America. Uh, I I don't know if you guys realize that you were both at a Forbes Small Giant event in New York in October. Um, and if, if you didn't meet Drew, Jay, uh, who's been a guest on this show, owns a uh, picture framing shop and a uh, home and garden store in uh, Chicago. But he, he's a manufacturer as well. And Jay, I'm curious if you have any uh, questions about the way Drew managed to upgrade his plant using the uh, the tax breaks in the Trump tax plan. Well, I assume that you the bank financed the equipment, I assume? Correct. We use bank financing uh, and uh, well, we're hoping to expense it as fast as possible, uh, and uh, you know that, that expensing gave us the you know the courage to go for it, take the chance. I mean, I have to assume that if you section one seventy nine, you actually created positive cash flow by you didn't actually take your money to buy the equipment, but you got this tremendous tax uh, write off, which means you were able to not pay taxes for a while until you use it up. So, I mean, because I've done the same thing to the degree it, it really. It's one of the few things the government's done lately to actually help small business. It really has helped accelerate the, uh, that you can buy equipment and get it going, and it, it really has made a difference out there. And I think, I, I'm not an economist, but I, I have to say, I think part of the reason why the economy is doing well now is I do believe that that kind of thing has helped business. It's helped you. It's helped me. I, I assume it's helped a lot of other people. The, 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 economy, the, the manufacturing business economy is sizzling, and you can see it by – the fact that there are more um, job openings than there are um, unemployed people. You could see it by the fact that wages are going up. You could see it by the fact that all my vendors now have much longer lead times. You could see it by the fact that my vendors are working more hours than they have ever worked before. And same with my clients. Uh, and you could see it, most importantly, with the orders. So. American, see, what happened was in the past, if you're a German factory, where do you put a factory? Well, it's a no-brainer. You put it in China, you put it in Mexico. Well, now that's not the, that, that calculus is completely upside down. Now it's a no-brainer. You've got to put the factory in America, or you've got to put the next machine in America, or the next investment in, in America. So that's happening over and over again with all of our, um, our friends overseas. They're recognizing that th we're the place to invest. And we're the place to put the next dollar. And uh, this is the core reason why uh, the American economy is blossoming and, it's in, and the manufacturing economy is, is, is exuberant. Drew, starting well, with you, also... did, I'm curious, did either of you learn anything going through this process? Um, if somebody, if there's a listener thinking about making this kind of an investment and trying to take advantage of the new tax laws, did you learn something going through it that you would point out for people to, to watch out for? I would say you really have to look at the positive cash flow that if you think about, you're buying something without your own money, 
and you're creating a tax loss, basically, that it really does help your cash flow because basically you're right you're Now, it's going to catch up to you later because you're taking the tax deduction now, but in the short run, it's helping your cash flow because you're writing a smaller check to the IRS at the end of the month, which is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. It gives you more cash to go out and expand your business some more. So I don't know there's anything to be careful of. I think it's it's been a great thing for a small business. Not only is the instant expensing a tremendous boon for the United States economy, but another boon is the fact that actually there are lower rates for these factories. So now we're more competitive with Canada. Now we're more competitive with Mexico. And what, what, what do you mean lower rates for what? For, for LLCs and for C-Corps. So uh, companies that uh, pay taxes in America. Oh, you're talking about lower taxes, tax rates on uh, their earnings. Correct. So in the past, you know, we were more expensive tax rate wise than France or Germany or Japan or China. Now we're lower. And uh, so not only can we invest uh, and, and get immediate uh, tax uh, benefits, but we can also, uh, with the income, we don't have to pay as much an, as an onerous a profit tax. So this is beneficial for our employees because all of a sudden everybody wants to invest more, spend more, make things happen, and that means you need more talent in America making those machines hum. I'll tell you another anecdotal thing that's happened. You know, I've been in business for 40 years, and over the years, I used to get a lot of call, you know telephone calls. And now with email, it's it's a fraction of what it used to be. But these days, if I'm gone for a week, I'll come back and I'll have three three messages, and two of them will be equipment leasing companies or or people that fund machinery, and they'll say, "Oh, hi, we talked to you last year. We want to know if you have anything you're buying." And it's like. There's a, there's a lot of money out there, and and I'm not getting stockbrokers calling me anymore. Don't start. I'm getting insurance. Like the number one people leaving messages. You're going to regret that, Jay. Finance equipment. It, it, it tells it, you how much it, money is out there to do this stuff. It, it's a very exciting time, uh, and it's neat. Uh, you know, we've been talking about for years how poised we are as a nation for a huge comeback, and it's happening right now. And, uh, you know, Marlin's enjoying it. Other factories are enjoying it. And uh, it, it's just the very beginning. Uh, and we're, we're going to see years and years of this um, positive thrust. And it's really going to help the middle class grow because all of these uh, machines and, and factories have to have talented workforce to help them uh, make those products or those machines sing. So it's, it's a very exciting, enthusiastic time. Jay? I want to highlight the fact that you said you spent, you worked, you worked hard to find this company. You were calling. I mean, it didn't just fall into your lap. And I think that's an important part of the story that you got what you deserved. You worked hard. You made all these hundreds of phone calls, and you found a good opportunity. That people just sitting around waiting for some opportunity to to knock on their door is probably not going to happen. Actually, it was even more impressive than that because he thought he found a good opportunity, <laughs> but it wasn't quite the opportunity he was expecting. Right. Yeah. Jay Galtz, thank you yeah, for calling in. We okay. got to take a break. Uh, really appreciate it. You were right. You did have a great question. Uh, several, in fact. Uh, okay, thanks. Appreciate it. Drew, uh, we got to take a quick break here, but uh, you were talking about your workforce, and I'd like to come back and talk a little bit about that more. Maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the type of people who are working there and how hard it is for you to, to find uh, people to work now. Um, but we're going to continue to take questions. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you've got a question or a comment, please give us a call. You don't have to wait. Our producer, Michelle Stucker, is standing by right now. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with Drew Greenblatt, uh, CEO of Marlin Steel, who uh, has demonstrated how a small manufacturing company can thrive in the United States. Uh, if you have any questions or comments on what Drew's done or a situation uh, in your, from your own experience, give us a call. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Uh, Drew, you were talking about 
what uh, all of this has meant for uh, employees, uh, for the middle class. Give us an example of somebody, um, not by name, but a a person who has thrived at your company as a result of how it has grown and, you know, what they how they've been able to advance their own career. So we have uh, an employee, James, uh, and he was actually featured in um, the New York Times. Uh, where he had a uh, challenging uh, upbringing and uh, ultimately was uh, dealing drugs on the street corner of Baltimore City and uh, was caught up with the law, served his time, and uh, came out, worked at Popeye's, uh, and then came to manufacturing. He left Popeye's because he was minimum wage, and then he came into American manufacturing. Fast forward now, he's uh, been with us for many years, uh, and uh, he's going to be making, I don't know, the exact number, 60, 70 large this year. Uh, and uh, he literally put his daughter through uh, college, and she graduated last May. It's a wonderful uh, middle-class story. That's a great story. And we need more of this in America. Uh, James is a, a, a wonderful talent, and uh, we're so pleased with his progress. He's running four quarter-million-dollar machines, uh, pieces of technology that make uh, that are shipped. Uh, the parts are shipped all over the world, and uh, we sent him uh, two months ago uh, to a FANUC Trading School, a robotic training school in Michigan, for a week, so that he could be more um, adept at running our ro- FANUC robots in our factory. So this is uh, what it's all about: is you know pulling people up from poverty into the middle class so that they can thrive and prosper and buy a car, rent a home, get married, have kids, and send them off to college. It's, it's, a, wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful progression. It's what our country needs. Drew, the, the most frequently asked question we get here uh, week in and week out is, uh, given how strong the economy is, how do you find good employees these days? Lots of people are struggling with that. H- have you struggled with that? Uh, absolutely. Um, For example, uh, we have been looking for a maintenance person to uh, maintain our equipment, these fancy robots I've been talking about. We've been looking for machinists. It's very challenging. Uh, The American economy is is so hot right now that it's very difficult to find this talent pool, uh, and and, uh, the pay is incredible, and the benefits are amazing. Uh, And uh, (laughs) Tell us what you're looking for. Tell us what you're paying. Maybe we'll find someone for you. Sure. So, so I mean, these are jobs that we're willing to pay thirty, thirty-five, forty dollars an hour for, and, and again, this is starting wages, uh, so that they can uh, contribute right away. Uh, and and um, these are, you know, you could buy a car, uh, take your kid to, uh, take your family to Ocean City, a two-week paid vacation, uh, health insurance. I mean, these are real career jobs. We need more of this in our nation. Give us an example uh, of a job that pays 35 or $40 an hour starting. A machinist or a maintenance fellow, uh, a welder. Do you have jobs for people who uh, do not have those kinds of skills yet? Absolutely. You know, our starting wage at our factory, if you come here uh, and you have no knowledge of anything technical, don't know how to read a blueprint, we're paying $17 an hour. So. <laughs> I mean, this is not, you know, burger-flipping kind of jobs. And all of these are coming with the same health insurance plan I'm on, the same health insurance plan my kids are on, uh, with a 401K and real holidays and real sick pay. And real it's a real career. Manufacturing, uh, over 95% of American manufacturers offer health insurance. These are great career jobs, and there's a massive disconnect in our economy right now where we're starving for employees and we just can't find them. Let's take a phone call. Uh, Jonah in Arizona, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hey, how's it going? It's going great, Jonah. What's on your mind? Hey, so I'm a millennial, and I actually am in the manufacturing industry. And I just wanted to call because it seems like Drew has a really positive outlook on the future manufacturing in the U.S. Um, but anecdotally, what I've seen is that there's a lack of millennials joining the workforce, and those things kind of seem to be playing, you know, against each other as, as we move forward. I wanted to see what he's doing about that and to see if he's experiencing that problem as well. Have you thought about that, Drew? It's a huge topic because uh, we have to communicate better that the wages are great. It's, it's neat work. It's not 
the old, it's not like your old factories of the past with uh, repetitive carpal tunnel syndrome kind of work. It's, it's brain work, and it's clean, and it's fast-paced, and it's interesting. Uh, so this is, uh, American manufacturing has to do a better job of explaining uh, the new manufacturing. It's high-tech, a lot of computers, a lot of automation, a lot of robotics, uh, collaborating with people, and uh, great people with great character. And it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. I mean, the alternative, being a barista or being, you know, uh, you know working in other industries, um, don't offer the same kind of consistency and uh, opportunity. Uh, I mean, how many industries can you, can, you know, welders make, uh, welders could be making north of $100,000 a year in our industry. Uh, and, and, you know, you're not going to find that in food service. You're not going to find that in retail. So we need to do a better job of explaining the benefits of uh, what we offer. And millennials uh, are, uh, are, are a target that we have to do a better job communicating with. Jonah, you're a millennial and you're in manufacturing. Do you think it's a matter of better communication? I completely agree. Um, a lot of the stuff I'm really resonating with what Drew is saying. And um, I think that, you know, something that's really been pushed on the millennial generation is that college is going to solve everything. And we've kind of neglected trade jobs and trade skills and things that um, still require that brain knowledge that he was talking about to do jobs in manufacturing, but you don't necessarily need to go to college for. And, and so, um, yeah, I completely agree that it comes down to, I try and tell my friends all the time, better education, better information of what potential really good jobs are out there, even if you don't go to college. What do your friends say? Uh, <laughs> well, kind of the kind of the stuff where, you know, I don't want to be in manufacturing because they have the wrong perception about it where I go into, you know, I'm, I'm actually in sales in the manufacturing industry. So I get to see a lot of different, um, a lot of different factories and shops and manufacturing settings. And, um, that's just not that classic idea of carpal tunnel work that he was talking about. Jonah, thanks for your call. Really appreciate it. If you have a question or comment for Drew about manufacturing or any other aspect of running a business, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Drew, I I got a question for you. We're we're talking about how you're struggling to find employees. You have to pay more and more to get them. You're also running your factory around the clock. Uh, My question is this. Are you sure you're charging enough? So that's a delicate balance. Uh, if uh, you charge too little, um, the math uh, doesn't work and, and the company goes under. If you charge too much, uh, the clients will object and, and will move on. Uh, so it, it, Is it know, that easy to replace you? You're doing custom work and you do it well and you deliver on time and they are made in America. Is it that easy to find a replacement for you? Right. So th- I think th- our secret sauce, the the mechanical engineers that come up with our innovative ideas are so outstanding that, you know, because of that we're getting patents and we're building a moat around ourselves. We're, we're able to protect ourselves. So uh, our, uh, I, I think you're, what you're saying is accurate, that we have to constantly evaluate, um, making sure that we're um, growing uh, at a rational pace. If, we, if we're growing so fast, uh, maybe we do have a price disconnect. Uh, I think right now our pricing is satisfactory. However, uh, that's something that we should have to, we should carefully watch. I don't want to put you in the spot. Are, are, are you willing to say whether you're happy with your uh, profit margin as it stands? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, when, when factories have uh, something called operating margin, where uh, um, they have a a certain point where they get above a break even, uh, things go very well. And if you could keep that above that break-even, um, the business is operating leverage really works in the factory's benefit. And, uh, you know, as long as we can keep above that magic number, above break-even, uh, things go very well. You've painted a very upbeat picture for, for your company and for manufacturing in general. Do, there have been some red flags of late uh, about uh, the economy, some some things giving uh, people some concern. Obviously, that hasn't <laughs> come anywhere near 
uh, close to hitting you yet. But do you worry at all uh, about where the economy is headed? Yeah, I think the economy's headed up. I'm very optimistic. Uh, I, you know, you can always divine a couple negative, um, uh, you know, st- stats somewhere if you look hard enough. Um, I'm looking at the big ones. I mean, the big ones are, you know, we have a low interest rate environment. We have a economy that is um, right now just starting to ramp up from years and years of, uh, you know, kind of slow growth. There's a lot of pent-up demand. There's a tremendous number of people that want to buy homes and buy cars that they're finally having uh, a prosperous enough economy that they can, you know, get into the middle class. So I think we're on the very beginning stages of good times. And uh, I, I, uh, you can see it in wages. I mean, when, when employees are allowed to demand more money and get it, and or feel confident to quit a job and jump ship to go to another one, uh, that's a uh, signal that, uh, you know, it's, it, people are enthusiastic and good times are coming. I'm still curious about the uh, the, the way you, you price your goods. Um, I, I, I just wonder... If you if you did test it and you just start raising your prices, it seems like um, either uh, you would either people would pay it and it would be easier for you to pay your uh, workers the more money that you're uh, that you're paying them Um, or, um, you know, that you would also have the opportunity to um, to maybe not have to work everybody overtime and, um, you know, maybe reduce the stress on uh, the, the plant and your workers uh, that way. Is, that, is this something that you're given a lot of thought to or, uh, you know, especially with you're thinking that the economy is still looking strong or am I off track here? I think pricing is something that we're addressing uh, multiple times every single day. What's the appropriate price? Um, and, uh, you know, for things where we have uh, patents, things where we have uh, significant intellectual property, we definitely have stronger pricing power. And in those areas, uh, we can command a, a bigger margin. But we deserve it because we have uh, tremendous engineers that have come up with novel, innovative concepts that you know, are leaps and bounds better than our Chinese competition or German competition. Um, With things that may have more of a commodity-like portion of the business, uh, we have less pricing power because at a certain point a person won't be interested. So I think it's it's a blend. Like on the more commodity-like stuff, we have less pricing power, so we have to, you know, maintain margins uh, accordingly. And uh, on the stuff that's uh, very innovative, novel, cutting edge. We, we have tremendous, we have tremendous pricing power, and we have to, uh, you know, be measured and, and uh, make sure that we take advantage of that. That makes sense. Speaking of the the commodity side of it, do you by any chance still sell any bagel baskets? Um, we have we have a couple bagel clients that just love our quality, and despite <laughs> the high price, they still buy from us. And you know, it's less than one percent of our business, so it's it's not. It really doesn't move the needle, but we've kind of kept those that those, that small sub segment alive. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, have you, speaking of the economy, have you been uh, affected at all by the steel tariffs? The steel tariffs have affected Marlin. We buy from American mills, and it's been uh, dispiriting because a lot of the um, Pricing of the domestic mills uh, uh, cranked up um, almost in lockstep with the tariffs that the Chinese mills were forced to um, charge. So, uh, you know, we're the good guys. You know, we're buying American, and despite that, we're still kind of getting caught up in the increase in prices, even though, you know, we're not paying any tariffs. But uh, a lot of the domestic mills have taken advantage of that. So, uh, you know, many American uh, factories um, are manufacturers of steel, and there's many more that are consumers and fabricators of steel. Uh, The fabricators uh, are uh, 
feeling the pain of the higher prices. Have you had to do anything differently to adjust to those prices? We've had to raise our prices. I see. Um, and, and what's challenging about that is that, you know, the German competitor I have did not feel this. So they uh, are, are able to be more competitive against us and uh, the Japanese competitor and the, the Mexican competitor. So this is, this is a negative, and uh, it's not a positive. I'm hoping, my, my aspiration is that new trade deals will be accomplished, and with that, the Chinese will respect intellectual property. With that, the Chinese will not dump steel into America, and our domestic steel mills will be able to be competitive. So we need uh, a, a good trading system that's fair. Uh, you know, NAFTA was recrafted. Um, you know, NAFTA was created before the iPhone. I mean, the world has changed a lot since when NAFTA was created. It needed to be rejiggered. Uh, the Chinese have been uh, not fair in how they uh, approach intellectual property. I mean, they just steal from us left and right. It's unacceptable. And uh, we need these elements addressed. I'm hoping these tariff wars that we're in the middle of is uh, short-term, and I'm hoping that our government can conclude with some very positive trade deals so that domestic manufacturing is, uh, is, has a fair and level playing field. I don't want to have one up on anybody. I just want to be equal. If we're equal, the American manufacturer will run circles around the global competition. We only have about a, a minute left, Drew. I, I'm curious. You've told this really impressive story about how you've uh, built this business, uh, had it pivot, go in a different direction, and evolve over the last 20 years. Tell us a little bit about what's your role like now. Uh, how do you run the business? My role right now is uh, trying to make sure we have amazing people in all the critical chairs at our factory uh, and, and, and leadership positions and work with them and nurture and mentor them. Uh, my role is also to meet with clients and see ways that we could help them uh, be much more productive and improve their throughput, uh, improve their safety, uh, reduce their scrap. Uh, so that's how I add value, uh, is by helping uh, hire, retain, recruit amazing talent, and also uh, working with clients so that we can develop for them ways to improve and streamline their uh, product line so that they can make more money and they can have happier clients for themselves. Drew Greenblatt, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your amazing story. My pleasure. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Drew, go to marlinwire.com. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but we're here every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. My thanks to audio engineer Dion Simpkins and producer Michelle Stucker. If you liked what you heard here, you can find me on Twitter at L Feldman. You can also check out the Oxford Morning Report, a daily newsletter for entrepreneurs. You can subscribe for free and you can find it just by Googling Oxford Morning Report. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 